Good morning. I am, uh, I'm very excited. We've got Catherine's mother, uh, who is also in many ways a mother to me, uh, here with us. And so please get to meet her and, and know her some. Uh, her name is Susan. She's just sitting up with Catherine. Uh, she's here for the baby shower and I guess to see us too. And uh, so we're thrilled to have her here. It's great to be here with all of you. If you're visiting with us, you're, you're welcome to be here and we are glad that you're here. Worshiping God, studying His Word. This morning we are going to open the Word of God. We're going to study together and we're going to start over in the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings. So please turn over there to, to 1 Kings. As you look at chapter 3, shortly after Solomon became king, he went and made a thousand sacrifices to God in Gibeon. And God came to him in a dream afterward. Imagine a thousand sacrifices to God. God comes to him in a dream and asks, basically, what do you want? You know, what, why have you made all these sacrifices to me? Obviously, you're trying to get my attention sort of thing. And Solomon, beginning in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 6, expresses his concern and his request to God. He focuses in this request, if you read through it, he focuses six times or more on God's ownership of His people, on how God is the one who placed Solomon on the throne, who God is the one who has blessed David by putting Solomon on the throne. And he calls himself in verse 8, your servant. That is, Solomon thinks of himself as God's servant, not as a king. But as you come down to verse 9, he says, So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon thought of himself as a little child, not sure of where he ought to go or what he ought to do. So he's requesting an understanding heart from God. One that can tell the difference between good and evil. And God grants this request and much, much more. Because He is so pleased with the way that Solomon approached Him or that, that He came to Him with this sort of humility and such a good desire to understand and to judge rightly in His role as king. Beginning with verse 16 of 1 Kings 3. We see the understanding and discernment that was given to Solomon put on display. In verse 16, two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. It happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. And so she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, 
for the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, no, for the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. And thus they spoke before the king. And so the king reiterates that this is one word against the other. One saying one thing, the other saying just the opposite. No witnesses are around to determine who's right. And so what's the king to do? In verse 24, he says, get me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two. Give half to the one and half to the other. And then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. And then the king said, Give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And when all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king. For they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. It's quite an account. It's famous even in those who are, are not members of the church. They know about this because it was so wise the way that Solomon dealt with this problem. But did you catch the last part? They said that there was... They feared the king. And the reason they feared him was because the wisdom of God was in him. There's something different about the wisdom of God from every other type of wisdom. And that is that his wisdom sees through words. And it sees straight into your heart. They were amazed because when there was one word against another with no witness to say anything otherwise... The king judged according to the truth that was hidden. The truth that wasn't being brought out by one. He saw into the heart and judged according to the truth. There's something that we need to realize and that is that when there's trouble between people. When there's trouble between you and another person, God sees the truth. And he judges righteously. That doesn't mean that in this life you're always going to feel well. Or that you're always going to feel good about what's going on. But when you're not treated well, don't be upset. Because God sees what's true and He judges righteously. His wisdom reaches deeper than the surface his ears and His eyes pierce deeper than flesh and bone. They see the Spirit. They see the heart. They see what's on the inside and what's really going on. Our bulletin article this week is about Hagar and Sarai and Abram. And I'd encourage you as you go home and go about your week to take a look at that. We're going to take a a little closer look this week in our lesson right now. We're going to talk about some things that just wouldn't fit on the front page. I want you to think as we study about the wisdom of God, about how wise He is about all the things that He sees, and how righteous His judgments are. Look at Genesis 16. Genesis chapter 16. 
In Genesis 16, we have Sarai and Abram. And they know that they're supposed to have a child. God promised them. But you know, Sarai, she figures she hasn't been able to bear children. And so it's time to do something different and figure out a new way. So she's going to give a free pass to Abram. She says to him in Genesis 16 verse 1, Sarai says, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Not true, it just wasn't time yet. She would bear a child later. But she says, Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. The joke goes, that was his first mistake. Now, that, that's a bad joke. Husbands shouldn't tell it. After Abram, it says, had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. If I were you, I would notice all of the actions that took place there, all of the active way that Sarai was in this situation. She tells Abram, go into my maid. Then in the recap in verse 3, Sarai took Hagar and gave her to her husband. Some worldly minded men would be very ready to hear this sort of request. There's been whole entire movies dedicated to this concept of a free pass. I would encourage you to read the rest of the story before you jump into something like that. Because what results is not good, it's not fun, it's not pleasant, it's not enjoyable. Let's read verse 4. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. That is, Hagar looked at Sarai now and said, I can do something that you can't. I have a child and you have none. And so I'm greater than you. She felt superior to her. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. And so she immediately lays the blame on Abram. Even though she was the one suggesting, the one who was doing all of the activity back in Verses 2 and 3, she says the wrong done to me is upon you. It's your fault. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly and she fled from her presence. And so here we had uh, Sarai, Hagar, and Abram all getting along fairly fine in verse 1 until they started to choose a way that God didn't prescribe. And now... All three of them are upset with each other. Abram is having trouble where Sarai is blaming him for everything. Sarai is being looked at with depreciation by Hagar. Hagar is being treated harshly by Sarai. Everything went terribly. Nothing good came from that arrangement. Nothing good comes when people decide they've got a better way than God's way. I want you to notice verse 7. 
verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found her, that is, found Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. And the angel of the Lord said further to her, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. Everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive after seeing him? God's wisdom is seen in at least a couple places here. First, in the direction given to Hagar in verse 9. After she'd run away because of the harsh treatment of her mistress, he says, return and submit yourself to her. God put that authority in place. And when he commanded Hagar, he commanded her to uphold that authority, to respect it because it's there. That's what many people go through in the workplace today, in their jobs and and with the government perhaps. They've got difficulty with those over them. But God teaches us in 1 Peter 2, verse 18, to be submissive to our masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. We find hope in unfair situations because we know God is watching in wisdom and we need to trust that God sees the truth. When you're mistreated by those over you and things aren't going the way they ought to and you see it but nobody else seems to, God sees the truth. And He's the one who will judge justly. But God's wisdom is seen in another place. Her son was to be called Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. God hears. And I thought to myself, what did God hear in this situation? God knew she was being mistreated. He would have seen how Sarai was behaving toward Hagar, described as harshly. But he also would have heard something. He would have heard the agreement suggested by Sarai concerning Hagar and Abram. He would have heard everything that went on and been able to judge righteously because of it. But now every time Hagar called to her son Ishmael, she would remember this moment when it was clear beyond any doubt that God heard. God heard. There's a psalm, Psalm 77 in verse 1. It says, My voice raises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice raises to God, and He will hear me. Do you believe that God hears you? 
You know, we pray a whole lot together. And sometimes it would be tempting to take that prayer for granted, to not think about what we're doing. Perhaps praying before a meal or or praying before bedtime or something like that. You, You say words, but perhaps you forget where they're intended to go. Why it is that you're talking to someone who is not there physically. You're talking to God. And do you believe that He hears you? In Romans chapter 8, we find uh, a very interesting assurance. Romans 8 verse 26 says, "In, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That verse, among several others, provides assurance that God hears you. He hears you when you pray to Him. And He hears you when you don't quite know how to say what you're trying to say to Him. There is an assurance that those things that we are unable to put into words, but sort of just come out as perhaps a weeping voice or or a a deep groan that those reach His ears and that He understands even that. He understands what you don't quite know how to say. He hears it and He judges righteously according to it. Through His wisdom, God sees what's beneath the surface. He hears what can't be said. And I thought about how, what, where should we go from there? We know that God sees what we cannot see and He hears what we cannot hear. But where does this lesson go from there? And I struggled with that for a little while. And then I just sat back and I said to myself, I want to know where I stand with God. I want to know what He sees in me. I want to see my life the way He sees it. I want to look through His eyes at everything in my life and be able to see with His sort of clarity what needs changing and what's right. And so the question was, how do I do that? How do I look at my life the way that God does? I'm going to give you three three passages, perhaps even three steps to take. And I think we'll take them multiple times through our life. But it begins with prayer. In James chapter 1 and verse 5, there's a statement made. James chapter 1 and verse 5 says, concerning trials and difficulties we encounter, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. I looked at that phrase, let him ask of God, and it sort of sounds like we're saying, well, uh, give him permission to 
you know, to go to God. And, and if you feel like asking God, go ahead and do that. It's not the way it is. That's a command. Not give him permission to ask of God. But if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you is not able to look at your life and see things the way that God does and see what God calls good and what God calls evil, ask. Ask of God. Because He gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to Him. But then there's that next verse, He must ask in faith. And if you've looked at James and if you've been paying attention in our Wednesday night Bible class, you'll recognize that faith in James carries more with it than just something in your mind. He's talking about praying and then doing along with the prayer. Working along with the prayer. You pray for wisdom, but there's a part that we play in that along with God. He gives to all generously without reproach. He's not going to refuse you if you come to Him and say, I need wisdom from you. I need to look at my life differently. But you have to do your part. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And as I wrote that down, I thought, you know what that tells me? Is if I want to be able to look at me and see my thoughts, see my intentions shown to me in a way that only God can show, I have to open His Word and look at it. I have to read it. I have to let it tell me. Because that's the only way that God's wisdom is going to show me what my motives are. You know, sometimes it's hard to sit down and figure out why I do some of the things I do. But it's a lot easier when God shows me, let's say, a prideful person doing the same thing then I start to realize that's a pride problem. need to become more humble. You know, there's, there's so many wise examples God's given to us to help us see ourselves. They're in the pages of Scripture. And they judge the thoughts and intentions of my heart. Of your heart. But you notice this line of thought is not about me being able to tell what's in your heart. It's about me being able to see what's in my heart. I'll leave your heart up to God and up to you. But I'll tell you this, His Word's there so I can look into me and see me and see what needs to change. And that's the third step. You have to change to agree with the wisdom of God in His Word. James 1 verse 22 says, prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If I want to see myself the way God does, if I want to be able to see my life with His wisdom, I have to pray, I have to learn His Word, and I have to change my life to agree with it. And as that process continues on my life, my intentions, my thoughts, my motives will become clearer and clearer 
And I will start to see exactly what needs to change and where I need to grow so that I can be more of the servant He wants me to be. And I'll have more opportunities to change. How have your motives been? How are your motives? A lot of times we talk about actions. We talk a lot about doing what God says, but how's your heart? How's your motivation? Why do you want to do good things if you want to do them at all? And if you don't, just recognize that. You know, no one's going to throw stones at you because you say, I don't want to do good works. That's a real thing. But it's important to pay attention to why. And then work on the motivation. Work on the motive. Work on why that is. Let God show you a better way. Advice is given in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 6. It says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then there's that famous passage comes right on the heels when he says that he will forgive the wicked, he will pardon the one who's unrighteous, who turns back to him the reason why. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are my way, nor, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. The wisdom of God causes him to offer us redemption. It causes him to redeem us through the blood of Jesus. He's willing to wash our sins away and not just willing, but He's able. He's able to wash your sins away if you will put your faith in Him. He wants you to be a child of His. There's no one who can't be washed by the blood of Christ. There's no one who when they open the Scriptures and learn from them, can't learn about their own motives and change them to be like God. You can do that. And I can do that. We can grow together and be more pleasing to God. But the beginning of that is to wash your sins away in Christ's blood. If you'll put your faith in Christ by repenting of your sins, confessing your belief in Him, and being baptized in His name for your forgiveness, you'll be washed clean. You'll be added to His church. And you'll begin a new walk. One that's challenging. One that's difficult. One that calls you higher than you are today. But one that is more rewarding than anything else you could ever do. And if you're ready to obey the gospel this morning, then we're here and ready to help you see the way. And if you've come with some other need this morning, we're here for you as well. We don't want to leave any need unhelped. And so please, if you've got a need of any kind... Please come forward while we stand and sing this song.